1860, there was a daredevil, and his name was Charles Blondin. Sorry, Marvel fans, you guys are like, say Matt Murdock, say Matt Murdock. Charles Blondin crossed over the Niagara Falls on a tightrope over 300 times. And as you read through his uh, autobiography and the things that people wrote about him, they estimate that he crossed that tightrope uh, for in excess of 10,000 miles. Can you imagine? 10,000 miles on a tightrope. Uh, you know, you've got these gurus like uh, Malcolm Gladwell who talk about the proficiency that comes after 10,000 hours. Can you imagine if uh, Gladwell did the math on how many hours it would take to go 10,000 miles? His, his hair would go straight. And so this uh, guy, Charles Blondin, was crossing Niagara Falls in 1860 when the Duke of Newcastle was visiting uh, and uh, was present for his presentation. And he crossed over from the American side to the Canadian side, and he was actually pushing another man on a wheelbarrow on the tightrope over Niagara Falls. The man gets to the Canadian side, gets out of the wheelbarrow, and uh, Blondin says to uh, the Duke of uh, Newcastle, um, do you believe that I could uh, do this uh, with you? Do you believe that I would be able to get you across? And uh, so the Duke said, yes, I do. And he said, great, hop in. And the Duke said, uh, no, I won't. And uh, you and I would probably say the exact same thing. And what's interesting about this, it's like, I just saw you do it. You have a track record of doing this. You've done it 10,000 10, times, and, uh, but I'm not putting my life in your hands. Our text this morning, that's a segue. Our text this morning is Proverbs 3, where we are given this clarion call to trust God put our life in his hands. All throughout the scriptures, repeatedly, over and over, we're called to trust him, called to put our life in his hands. Here's the question is, is it this blind leap of faith, trusting God? Is it this risky proposition, trusting God? I would argue that as we look at God's track record of saving grace throughout history, as we look at how God has woven the proof of his existence into nature, this world that we live in, the cosmos, as we consider the greatness of God, that actually the risky proposition is not trusting him, but the risky proposition is to not trust in him. Our text today from Proverbs chapter 3, the first uh, 12 verses. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke, because the Lord disciplines those that he loves as a father, the son that he delights in. This is God's word. As we examine this proverb, and we think about becoming wise people, training our children to be wise, wise in the wisdom of God, wise in the ways of God, loving him. Uh, we want to consider this uh, in these days that we're living in, 
because quite often uh, the decisions that we need to make are not always black and white, clearly moral or immoral. In fact, many of the decisions that we make, many of the choices that we have to engage with week in and week out are not even necessarily um, right and wrong uh, in terms of uh, morality, but require this nuanced wisdom. How do I respond in this situation? How do I engage in this situation? So we want to be wise people. And there's this clarion call to really trust in God and this being at the foundation of wisdom. So we're going to look at two things this morning. Ask this text two questions. And I probably give you some pastoral homework and say we're never going to do justice to this proverb or any of them uh, in, in one sitting. And so my, my pastoral homework for you might be to just take this text and marinate, marinate on it for days. Read it for days. Break it apart for days. The two questions we're going to ask this morning are, on what basis do we trust God? And then secondly, what does it look like to trust God? So we can't answer those things comprehensively, but we can start. So let's look at it. On what basis do we trust God? When you look at the first three verses, we're given some instruction. We're told not to forget his commands. Interesting from an, interestingly, from an author who did forget his commands. We're told to uh, keep his commands. Interestingly, from an author that chose not to keep his commands. We are told... Uh, to be people of love and to be faithful. Interestingly, from an author who was not loving and faithful. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because, again, when you're thinking about the Proverbs and we consider the author, of course, the Holy Spirit, God is superintending as the ultimate author. But through Solomon, who wrote this, we have to recognize that wisdom begins with an honest exploration of our capacity to be foolish. And we cannot be wise until we do a self-autopsy to consider how we can be fools. And Solomon spent a lot of years acting the fool. He's actually looking back very thoughtfully, retrospectively on his life. And because he was the king, he was in a unique, privileged position to have the power and the resource to actually trust in other things and give his life to other things totally. And he did that. I'm going to give you a quick example. Deuteronomy 17. God commands the kings not to multiply their wealth, their horses, or their wives. Study the life of Solomon. What did he do? He multiplied his wealth, his horses, and his wives. It's exactly what he did. God says, don't multiply your wealth because then you're going to trust your wealth, not me. Solomon did that. Don't multiply your horses because then you're going to trust in your military power, not me. Solomon did that. Don't multiply your wives because sadly in, in the ancient world, women were like property and you would marry them. Solomon had 70 wives uh, because those were, po those were political alliances with other countries. So he was trusting in all of his political alliances. He was trusting in his military power. He was trusting in his wealth. So this proverb actually starts out calling us to trust from a man who's being retrospective in all the ways that he didn't trust. And so this is good for us to consider because one of the ways that you know you've wandered from the trust of God and one of the ways that you know you've taken something smaller and put it on the throne and made it God is this. And Solomon knew this, which is why he begins like this. When times are good, you're haunted by discontent. And then when times are hard, your soul is all panic, no peace. Solomon knew both of those things very well. Right? He had all the power, he had all the prestige, and when he had all the stuff, he was haunted by discontent. 
And also after he shifted from saying, well, maybe I'll find fulfillment in material things and he was haunted from discontent, then he shifted and he said, well, I'm going to trust in my accolades, my accomplishments. I'm going to, I'm going to build cities. We're going to be successful. We're going to be productive. We're going to, but then he started getting frustrated and disillusioned by the senseless violence he kept seeing in the world, the cycles of injustice, the cycles of oppression that, ha, that had been going on for millennia before Solomon and millennia since. And he got frustrated at the depraved state of humanity where for every person you found who was good and righteous and generous and loving and kind to their neighbor, you could always find the opposite. And it wasn't that the world worked in this neat, simple way where good people got good things and bad people got bad things. He keeps seeing the senseless injustice and it just kind of plagued him. And so he, he had, he had no peace. He was just full of panic. By the time you get to the third or fourth chapter of Ecclesiastes, he sounds like a brooding Batman, and he and he's just like, criminals are like weeds, Alfred. You pull one up, and another one grows in its place. And he's freaking out. And so as Solomon is thinking about how when times were good, he was haunted with discontent. And then when times were hard, it was all panic and no peace. And then he arrives at this place we are right here where he says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. And then the text kind of plays its way out. Because when the thing that your trust is anchored to is God, um, then you can be in great abundance or great lack and enjoy contentment. When what your trust is anchored to is God, then when the problems are continually rolling in, you can actually have peace and not panic. And this is very bold, but look at the basis for trust in this text. Look at verse three. He talks about, this love and faithfulness that never leaves. I want to ask you a question. If you've studied the life of Solomon, does love and faithfulness that never leaves describe this author? No, but it does describe his God. A love and faithfulness that never leaves does not describe Solomon, but it does describe the faithfulness of God towards Solomon. It does describe the grace and the love and the forgiveness of God towards Solomon. And this love and faithfulness that never leaves, this is the basis for trust. It doesn't, love and faithfulness that never leaves doesn't describe you, doesn't describe me. The basis for trusting in the word of God, for reading the word of God, for ingesting the word of God, the basis for meditating it and, and, and applying it, it is rooted in this awe and this worship and this wonder of the grace of God. Look at the text. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind it around your neck. Whose love and faithfulness? Yours? No, God's. Write it on the tablet of your heart. Whose love and faithfulness? Yours? No, God's. This is what the author is getting at for us to consider. Church, we will become people of wisdom after we become people of worship. And we become people of wisdom after the knowledge that God is for us. And through Jesus Christ, he went to unfathomable lengths to save us. And the, this gospel is a fiery reality in us. This is the beginning of wisdom. This is the basis for trust. And the reason why this is so important is you just if we just bypass all this, you say, yeah, yeah, Paul, I've been saved a long time and going to church for a long time. So let's just get past. Yeah, we get Jesus. Let's park him over there and just get to the wisdom stuff. That is like being a foolish child that when their, when their father 
comes in the house, you just run up and jam your hands down into the pockets and you say, what did you get me? You seek the Father's face, you will get absolutely everything that is in the Father's hands. And so this is why before we are people of wisdom, we must be people of worship, people of wonder, people of awe, people who meditate in the goodness of God's grace. This is the basis for our trust. So what does it look like then to, to trust? If, that, if the basis for our trust in God is his faithfulness and not ours, then what is it going to look like as our trust plays out? You know, I was on a, at a conference in, in British Columbia, and, sometime, and, and uh, sometimes what they do is uh, when they're trying to secure a venue, they will take you out and they will show off their venue. So one of the things they did uh, to show off the venue they wanted us to have this conference at was they took a zip lining in British Columbia. There are massive zip lines in British Columbia. There's one called the Sasquatch. It's 600 feet high, 7,000 feet long. I'm not sure if I was on that one, but the ones that I were on, they were hundreds of feet into the mountains. And at some point, I had to take that little carabiner and clip it onto the zip line and jump off the side of a mountain. Now, I under, you can understand intellectually that this thing is going to hold you. But at some point, you have to physically do some things. And so to trust God is not this kind of just the spiritual intellectual assent. Oh, yes, I trust God. My life is in the hands of God. I hear my pastor say this all the time. So yes, I trust him. But functionally, day to day, there's got to be a clipping on of that carabiner, metaphorically speaking. And actually, your life in very tangible ways um, plays out that trust. And this proverb gives us some insight into a few of these things. When you look at verse five, it says, trust the Lord with all your heart. Again, it's this love language. Um, this, this affection language that comes out. In other words, we don't believe, believe in God in an abstract sense and trust in something else daily. There, there's a connection. There, it's, there's no disconnect between our day to day and this trust of God. And this is because really what we want is that practically as we walk out the Proverbs, as we meditate on them and integrate them, teach our children to do the same. The goal is that there is a resemblance of our Heavenly Father over time. And this is because we don't just read God's word. God's word reads us. God's word is alive and it's powerful. And as you read it, and as you teach and encourage your children to read it, it is reading you. It is doing something in you. It is powerful and alive. So the text says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. So what is it going to look like to not lean on your own understanding? If you've ever been in a conversation and a debate breaks out, somebody grabs their phone and they say, that's it, let's just Google it and settle this right now. And they Google it and they find a reputable source that refutes what you just said. Now you're faced with a choice. Um, you can say, I stand corrected and you can change your way of understanding or you can double down on your way of understanding in the face of facts that contradict what it is that you think. And if you do not in that moment humble yourself and choose humility and shift your way of understanding, then what you're going to do in that moment is sear your conscience and forge foolishness into your life. We want to forge wisdom into our life. So when the text says, lean not on our, understand, on, on our own understanding, and this means that we have to uh, determine uh, to stand under God's word to understand is to stand under. Pride stands over. 
if I'm not, if I'm going to lean not on my own understanding, then that means that I want to use it to borrow from Martin Luther in the Reformation a ministerial use of reason, not a magisterial use where I'm standing over and just already decided what I believe and think about whatever uh, you know that this text might happen to be. Maybe I have thoughts and views. If we take our last series on mercy and justice, but then the text confronts me, I have a choice to make. Will I submit to the Word of God? Maybe I have thoughts and views on um, on poverty, the poor, the outcast, the refugee. Maybe I have thoughts and views on how we ought to relate to them, and I come to the Word of God, and it challenges those views. I have a, I have a, I have a choice now. I can either sear my conscience, keep my views, try and ram jam the Word of God through cultural conversations, or perhaps. Uh, political lenses, or I can make all of those things subservient to the Word of God so that I understand it, so that I'm using a ministerial use of reason and not a magisterial use, kind of standing over it. Because to the degree that we determine to understand God's Word, lean not in our own understanding, we will forge wisdom into our life. We will teach our children to forge wisdom. And to the degree that we just double down and say, regardless, you know, I'm uncomfortable with this text because this text is contrary to cultural conversations. I'm, if I approach God's word that way, then I will not forge wisdom. I will be forging foolishness um, in my own heart and my own life. When you look at verse 6, it says um, uh, the, when we submit to the word of God, when we acknowledge God, he makes our paths straight. And this path uh, conversation, this is a metaphor you know, walking a path is a metaphor of doing something steadily, going through life, this repeated rhythm like footsteps. It's um, these repeated and reinforced sources that are informing our thought processes and our habits and our actions, you know, taking us places on a path. Um, this is a, you know, in, in, in the Hebrew sense of following a path and kind of this, this metaphor, the goal of um, applying instruction of your teacher, the goal was always that you would resemble the teacher. That was always your goal. And so for us, we look at this and say, really our goal is not to replicate Jesus, which is of course impossible in this perfect uh, obedience to the Father, but we are called to resemble him, to, to, uh, we're called to uh, imitate him. And so what this provokes then, this whole conversation around um, acknowledging God, his, not trusting in our own understanding, it provokes us to examine our patterns. It provokes us to examine the rehearsed ideas, the habits, the voices that are either forging a congruency and a wisdom with God's ways or forging a foolishness uh, in us. Because it's possible to be you know, incredibly intelligent, but still be a fool in terms of the ways and the wisdom of God. Uh, for example, um, there's an uh, author and apologist in the UK. His name is Glenn Scrivener, and he, he gives this story about... Um, uh, Johnny, get, Johnny giving Betty the botanist a rose. I've talked to you guys about this before. Some of you might remember it. It's February 14th, and these, this guy works in the lab with Betty the botanist, and he gives her a long stem rose on February the 14th, and she takes the rose, and she says to him the next day, thank you so much for that specimen. I put it under a microscope, and I discovered an ecosystem on the leaves, and I think I found some pharmacological properties that are going to help with Alzheimer's. And, uh, oh, it's just a beautiful specimen. Thank you, Johnny. Thank you for the specimen. And Johnny says to Betty, the botanist, Betty, it's, it's, it was February 14th. I gave you a long-stemmed red rose. Do you not know what this means? In one sense, Betty, the botanist, knows, knows the rose better than anybody. But in the other sense, she, she's got a futile understanding. And it's possible for us to be very intelligent and listen to lots of intelligent voices in our lives, 
that are futile in their, in their understanding if they're not provoking us to put our trust ultimately in God. So really the question is, as we consider this, walking this path, the formative voices, the leaning out on our understanding, is which voices are the loudest? Whose philosophical ideas are on repeat in my mind? Um, and, you know, are those voices um, contradicting the character of God, contradicting the wisdom of God, contradicting the word of God? Because if they are, they may very well be intelligent and, um, uh, intelligent and uh, useful voices in many ways, but they could be futile in others as it relates to us putting our trust in God. So really, ultimately, what we need is this wisdom and the ability to discern because everybody's preaching, not just me. Everybody's on mission <laughs> to convert to ideologies, not just me. Everyone's a preacher. And everybody is saying, think about the world like this. Think about these issues like this. And so we need the wisdom of God. And of course, as we're going down this path, it says he will make our path straight. Every path has two ditches. And as I observe my own life, as I observe uh, Christianity in Canada, as I observe church history in Canada, there's two ditches. Uh, one, let's call one ditch the religious ditch and the other ditch the rebellious ditch, okay? In the religious ditch, you'd say, well, we don't want voices in our heads that are going to be contradicted to the word of God. So what we will do is we will isolate ourselves from the culture and we'll make sure we live in a Christian echo chamber. And the only people I listen to are Christians. I work with Christians, isn't that great? My dentist is a Christian, isn't that great? The person that changes the tire on my car is a Christian, isn't that great? And I would say, no, that's not great. Um, in, in this kind of self-righteous religious ditch, there is an isolation from the culture, which, of course, leads to superiority and, at worst, perhaps oppression. But essentially, we're isolated from the culture. But way over in the other ditch is the rebellious ditch uh, in which you're mentored by the culture, in which you and your children are baptized in the ideology of the culture, where you really... Uh, listen to the message of the culture and are so familiar and acquainted and affectionate toward it, you really can't discern when you're getting some really good, excellent, practical wisdom from some intelligent people or when you're being told some things that are fundamentally shaping your worldview in ways that's actually contradictory to the ways and the wisdom of God. And so you've got the religious ditch, stay away from the culture. You've got the rebellious ditch, you know, be baptized and mentored by the culture. But then if we could stay on this path, call it, the repent, a, a, a path of humility and repentance where, where we engage with the culture. We, we, uh, we love and affirm the culture whenever we can, but we are unafraid to confront ideas of the culture whenever necessary. And this is the wisdom of God that we are um, called to be able to, to walk in. The text says that our paths are made straight. The paths are not made easy. And there's a lot of prosperity language in these verses that I read this morning because God does want us to prosper. And, and we don't want to shy away from this idea of prosperity, but we do want to understand um, the, the, the depth of the meaning of prosperity. Because it can mean that if we follow the ways of God, the wisdom of God, uh, we can be successful um, uh, perhaps vocationally or physically or materially because we're just making wise decisions in life. So there is absolutely a truth to that and, and those things are good. But there's a deeper meaning to prosperity that we can't lose, particularly as modern Westerns. And the deeper, the deeper prosperity here is that 
your soul can be in a state that's good when absolutely nothing is good. Your soul can be in a state that is good when your health is not good, when your, your uh, physical um, uh, wealth and vocation is not good, that your soul can still be good. And to that, I want to draw your attention to verse 8 because in this prosperity language, there's this phrase, health and strength to our bones and to our flesh. And what does that mean? Well, we know that it, it can't simply mean obey the ways of God and you're going to be physically healthy because our church is filled with lovely people, the Redeemer family. There's folks here who love God, love his ways, worship him, um, and have significant health challenges, some of whom may struggle with them for a lifetime. So we don't want to truncate prosperity to mean that. Um, but what does it mean then, this health and strength of the bones and the flesh? Well, this is a, this is, you know, um, a Hebrewism Think about it. We, do, we say it this way in English as well. When something gets into your bones, what are we really saying? Say, I can feel it in my bones. It's electric, wavy, when I turn it on. Okay, some of you didn't get that reference. That's okay. It's dead silent, so I can't tell who did and who didn't. But the point is, when you've got this feeling inside your bones, that's electric, wavy, when you turn it on. That's what, that's what Solomon is getting at here. That there is a goodness that is at the core. There is, a, there is a goodness that God brings and a blessedness that's in the soul that's deep and pervasive. It's what Paul, the Apostle Paul gets at in Philippians 4 when he talks about the secret. He's like, I can have wealth or no wealth. I'm good. I can be on the top or on the bottom. I'm good. When you think about that, that state of blessedness, you know, health and wealth, of course, are desirable. But to have peace and poise without the health, not tethered to wealth, to be bulletproof in your soul, regardless of your state of health or wealth, that is more desirable. This is what this is provoking here, this, this love and this wisdom of God and the prosperity that brings to our souls. So how do we avoid this, you know, fostering this foolishness and forging the wisdom? We're given some of these critical insights. Another one is in verse 7, which says, don't be wise in your own eyes. And all throughout Proverbs, it says that fools are wise in their own eyes. And, you know, that is giving a nod to the communal aspect of our faith. Because we are, as uh, here in southwestern Ontario, we're a very individ individualistic culture. There are good things about that. You know, things like um, human rights is born of the idea of each individual being valuable. So there's good things about being individualistic. But this context is a communal culture. We have a communal faith. Christian faith is not an isolated faith. And so here where it says, don't be wise in your own eyes, that could only mean one thing. Uh, in the original context in which this, this text was written. And that is that you're in a community of people who have also submitted to the word of God, who are intimately connected to your life, who are walking this path with you, who are actually a blessing to you. So we want to think about our Redeemer family that way, because you might be tempted to say, listen, I'm okay with the Zoom call. I'll give an hour on a Sunday morning to these people, but I'm not walking through life with these people. I'm not going to take the time to make deep friendships with, with the community at Redeemer because I'm good. I can be by myself with an espresso, read my Bible. I can watch videos of people that are far more intelligent than Paul Dunk, and I can read books and sermons that are far deeper and richer than the, the, than the preaching of Paul Dunk. And I couldn't agree more, but listen, smarty pants, you can't become wise by yourself. That's the point. Uh, you, you, you need a community. I'll, I'll give you an example. Have you ever looked at a photo of yourself that somebody else took? You're seeing it for the first time and you go, oh my goodness, I don't look like that, do I? And your friends are like, yeah, you do. 
right? Men, we're getting older and our hair is getting thinner. And somebody looks at a, we see a photo of ourselves from behind and we say, the back of my head doesn't look like that, does it? And our friends say, yes, it does. You ever listen to somebody take a video of you and you hear your own voice, right? It, when you hear, you hear your own voice on somebody else's phone and you say, oh my gosh, I hate that. I don't sound like that, do I? Your friends are like, yeah, you do. You can't see yourself. You can't hear yourself. You need to be a part of a community who is walking down this path of the goodness of God's grace with you, who has also submitted to stand under the ways of God with you so that they can say to you, yeah, actually, you are that way. I love you. I care about you. I'm committed to you. We're going to worship God together, and we're going to be a part of this Redeemer community, and, and we're going to fall and make mistakes and sin and, and frustrate each other. All of the things are going to happen, but we need the community so that we're not wise in our own eyes. And the only way to not be wise in your own eyes is to be in community with some other eyes. So as we look at this, there's a, there's a, a huge shift right towards the, the end of these verses. And uh, there's these two things that get mentioned. The first one here is wealth. It says, honor the Lord with your wealth. Why all of a sudden this, this financial juke in the text? Why is that? God doesn't need our wealth, yet all through the Old Testament, um, the people of God are encouraged to bring their wealth. Jesus, throughout the New Testament, constantly, uh, n- not necessarily teaching on the subject of wealth, but using the subject of wealth to get at other you know, heart issues. So why, why all of a sudden, in a text about wisdom, does this <laughs> go in there, honor the Lord with your wealth? It's because there's nothing more human than trusting in wealth. This text is all about trust. So it makes complete sense that your money would get brought up because there's nothing more human than trusting on this. See, as children of God, we are invited to see our lives in a completely new way, in a liberating way. The physical resurrection of Jesus Christ who died on the cross, the atoning death for our sin and rose again bodily, that bodily resurrection has uh, implications. It means this life is not all that there is. And if this life is not all that there is, that means... Your future is not secure because you have money. Your future is secure because you're a child of God. Your future is secure because your life is in the hands of God. You can trust him. And trusting in him is not risky. Trusting in your wealth is extremely risky. And this is why this is put in the text. Because the good news of the gospel enables us to honor God with our money Instead of, you know, believing in God, but functionally trusting in our money. It invites us to, as Jesus said, look at the birds, look at the flowers, breathe. Your life is in the hands of God. The proverb is, all proverbs really are provoking us to consider what narratives are we living in? Because that, of course, is going to determine how we think about money. It's going to determine how we teach our children to think about money. It's going to forge patterns in our life of either trusting in God or just doing the human thing and trusting in our resources and trusting in our money. The bottom line is this short life is not the largest part of our existence. This short life is actually the smallest part of our existence. And so because this beautiful and broken world is not going to just freeze over when the sun burns out like all stars do and there will be no trace of human existence you know, in the universe and all these things that we say matter and a billion years won't. The truth is not that, but the truth is that all things will be restored and because that is true, we can trust in the goodness of our God 
and we can use our money in a way that honors them. See, it says honor him with your wealth. When you honor somebody, you're like, do something that reflects their nature. When you say, I'm doing this in honor of you, it's like you think about the person, you know, if you do a birthday present and you're like, hey, I didn't buy your birthday present, I gave to this cause in honor of you. That cause needs to reflect their heart, right? If you said to me, Paul, for your birthday, in honor of you, um, I've given to this organization to help the endangered species of poison dart frogs. That wouldn't honor me because I don't care about poison dart frogs. In fact, I'd never even heard of poison dart frogs until I did research for this sermon analogy right now. So to honor is to say, I'm going to do something with this money that is a reflection of the one whom I love and God. So that looks like, of course, furthering the message of the good news of his grace and the gospel through his church. And it looks like justice in the city, giving to the poor, giving to the out, uh, outcast, giving to the refugee. That, that honors God because that reflects the heart of God. And so, of course, as a community, we're, we're aiming to be generous in that way and to do those things. And so I'm going to close with this. Last thing I want to mention is what the text gives us in verse 11 and 12, where it says, do not despise the Lord's discipline. You know, he is motivated by love, like a father who loves his children. As parents, you don't, if you love your children, some of you have very young ones, they're toddlers, they're running around. You, as a loving parent, you're not going to do free range parenting and just be like, hey, whatever you choose is fine, whatever you do is fine, whatever you think is fine. That is not a demonstration of your love. That is a demonstration of utter parental negligence. You will actually discipline your children because you love them. You will discipline them and you will permit pain in their life. You will permit pain because you love them, because you want to develop resilience in them, right? When your little toddler is taking their first steps, you're going to let them fall because a loving parent is going to enable some pain in, in their life in order to foster growth. This is what our Heavenly Father does. You're not going to put your child on a tether like a yo-yo so that every time they start to get a little tipsy, just jerk them back up, back on their feet. But many times, the modern construct of God is that that's exactly what he would do. Well, if God, if God is a loving God, then life would be great and the world would just be a, a big box of chocolates and everything. nobody would have any pain. But that's not a picture of a loving and gracious God. And in fact, through the Old Testament, you continually find not only does God permit pain in the life of his children, but when his children start worshiping the wrong things, God would actually bring pain. And the way that he would bring the pain is not by being some angry, abusive, cosmic parent, but he would bring the pain by attacking the idols. He would bring the pain by taking away the very thing they were trusting in. And God had no qualms about doing that. And the reason he did it is because it was the most loving thing that he could do. The theologian John Calvin said it like this. Sometimes it feels like God's arrow is pointed at you, but it's not pointed at you. It's never pointed at you. It's pointed at the snake that's wrapped itself around your neck. And so our God is a loving God. He is a loving father who disciplines those that he loves. He's not an angry parent, you know, you know, disciplining his children in the grocery store because he's publicly embarrassed saying behave you fools our god came in jesus christ on the cross and he died for us fools our god loves us fools you know we generally obey and accept when we you know and accept god's wisdom once we see the personal benefit but thank God for the scandalous grace of Jesus Christ who perfectly obeyed God on our behalf, not because it was for his benefit. He went to the cross for our benefit. Jesus obeyed the Father's wisdom and he went to the cross 
his grace for you and me, the basis for our, the basis for our trust. So trust in the Lord, church, with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him. He will make your paths straight. Let's pray.